Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Banerjee's Owen Wolbioff about how TV companies are tapping into the growing popularity of immersive experiences. Ukrainian producers Daria Ligoni-Fialko and Igor Storchak on documenting the country since Russia's invasion, and Rockadale Studios' Michelle Singer on unearthing comedy talent at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Anyone who's been to Disneyland knows that real-life experiences based on entertainment IP are nothing new. But with ambitious, immersive experiences based on hit properties, such as Netflix's Stranger Things growing in popularity, more and more TV companies are exploring ways they can get in on the action. Banerjee Group Chief Commercial Officer Owen Walbioff spoke to Nico Franks about how the company is exploring the potential of titles like Peaky Blinders, The Crystal Maze, MasterChef and Black Mirror. He also spoke about bringing immersive experiences based on TV shows into people's homes and Banerjee's ambitions to develop content for the metaverse. My role at Banerjee is running their commercial division, so we're responsible for the monetization of the group's IP. So once we sell a show or format to a broadcaster, we retain the commercial rights for exploitation. So we sell those rights to uh, different uh, manufacturers or developers who then go on to create branded products with our IP. They take those products to market, sell them to consumers, and then they pay us royalties off the back of that. So I run the commercial division and the entity within Banerjee is called Banerjee Brands. And to what extent is live entertainment, because that's an interesting area, um, is live entertainment kind of a really fast-growing segment of, of what you do? Yeah, so I, we call, we tend to call it experiential, li- live experiences, I think. So pre-COVID, it was a real growth area for us and something that we were focusing on. Obviously, when COVID happened, it stopped like like many other categories, but I think that was probably the one that was hit hardest for us. Actually, some of the, some of our categories grew in COVID, but that one definitely didn't. It halted dramatically. But yes, it's it's a focus for us. And actually, since since COVID's finished, it's booming. It's rebounded, and everybody wants to get back out there now without their face masks on and experience things. So yeah, it's a, it's a focus for us for sure. So with Peaky Blinders, what we found is that we had lots of pop-up events. Some were, unli- most were unlicensed, which was, a, which was a, a problem, but we've got some fantastic legal talent to help us with those situations. Yeah, there it's definitely a thing, isn't it, on, to do with copyright because there's also Peaky Blinders barbers you see yeah. around certain towns no, so is, no. is that a, an issue you know on, on that scale and the bar like the Peaky Blinders bar theme bars I think yeah. I've seen, heard stories of yeah it, I mean it, it, it is an issue certainly if we don't if we don't own the trademark it's disappointing so so now what we do is we have a trademarking team within Banerjee and we presume that a new format will be a success. So early, we spend money at protecting or applying and then owning the trademarks so that we're then responsible for the exploitation. So in, it, sometimes in the past, and you know we won't go into why, but 
if we don't own a trademark and a third party has owns it and then is operating an event, then, you know, that that's disappointing for us. But then, you know, in the past we've worked with them and enhanced it and we've, we've shared in the success. But then again, when you get the unlicensed operators who are create, who have created events with your brands and then are monetizing them, then yeah, we're, we're very aggressive there with our, with our legal teams. You know, we go after them, we send them cease and desist letters as you would, because there are rights. It's our brand. Um, so yeah, you get, you do tend to get, shall we say entrepreneurial people that want to, to start things up and, and, and go for something and they're willing to do it for, a, for, for however long it takes you to stop them or close them down. They're willing to do it. Um, but uh yeah, that's 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 obviously unfortunate, but you know that it also it, it's it's expected. And how are you seeing it develop in terms of scripted and non-scripted IP? It, it, it varies, doesn't it? So when you look at uh, unscripted formats, and you look at shows like Crystal Maze, for example, it, it's very obvious what you do. So how do you replicate the Crystal Maze television format as a live event experience it, it it's quite it's quite obvious and it's also quite exciting and actually we have a fantastic operator that has created events in london and manchester and does fantastically well with that brand and replicates the problem solving cerebral physical elements that the contestants on the show go through and manages to successfully replicate those in a live event experience so you can go with your mates your partner you know your wife your kids your family whoever it might be whatever the group but working together to try and solve a puzzle so it's it's obviously saying it's easy is 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 not right but it's it's more obvious what you do with crystal maze it's less obvious what you do with a brand like black mirror but Black Mirror is enormous format. Coming back on Netflix, one of Netflix's biggest, if not their biggest brand show. But because Black Mirror is an, is, is an anthology-based format, the licensee or event operator will need to be creative and tell a new story, create a new story. I mean, there's always the option to use an existing one and modify that, but... It's harder, isn't it, from a creative perspective, what you do with Black Mirror compared to what you do with, say, the Crystal Maze. Um, but again, then going back to another non-scripted format like MasterChef, MasterChef is about food. So therefore, if you create a live event experience with MasterChef, then it needs to it needs to involve food, whether it's eating or cooking. Um, one of the biggest challenges for us with some with a format like MasterChef and licensing the rights to a live event to a licensee is is quality. You know, you can't you can't have a MasterChef restaurant that that sells bad food because it's then damaging to the brand. So when a consumer goes to the MasterChef restaurant, it's it has an expectation and, and the licensee has to deliver that. You mentioned Black Mirror. Yeah. So, you know, tech is at the heart of, of that yeah. show in many ways. To what extent 
the, the live experiences that Banerjee is exploring VR, you know, that's a potential avenue to explore. Yeah. And I feel it feels like we've been talking for many years now about when VR is going to kind of come into the mainstream and maybe it never will, but it definitely feels like there's a place for VR in certain experiences. So yeah, how are you exploring kind of a, a VR, AR and other kinds of tech, even the metaverse? I think there was one one really successful example of a VR live event experience. And actually, because we're based in Shepherd's Bush, I remember it being in Westfield and it was with Star Wars. Um, and, you know, you'd go there, you, you'd put on the headset, you'd have your gun, and then you'd be immersed, fully immersed in that experience. Although you're just walking around a, a pop-up stand in a, in a, um, in a shopping centre, people were fully immersed because of the quality of the of the the software the gaming software so that's uh, that's where i see one exciting opportunity for for black mirror you know a fully immersive interactive experience with black mirror you could see that working obviously that requires a huge amount of investment from the licensee but um i think one that would be worth it and we're exploring those sorts of partnerships now but then of course you know you you then you go on to you don't. Ha- it doesn't have to be a, a lot. Uh, it doesn't have to be a, an a, an event you attend physically. You could remotely join an event, and therefore, then you get into the whole VR gaming. You know, you've got these big gaming platforms now, massive multi, you know, billion dollar businesses that are really looking up. You know, they're they're assuming that the future is people immersing themselves from home. In a he- with a headset, with a with an avatar that is probably looking very, potentially looking very differently to the one to your own <laughs> physical self. And again, that's quite exciting because you know we're seeing that again our brands, our IP are interesting to these platforms, and they they want to offer our formats as part of those experiences within these these gaming platforms. And then of course you have these metaverses, which are being talked about, which are emerging now. You know, you have Facebook meta, you have Decentraland, you have Sandbox where there's cryptocurrencies. And, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a really interesting fast, fast moving space. And we're, we're really lucky to have the IP that, that we do within Banerjee brands, which is obviously created by our television business. And yeah, it gives us, fantastic opportunities to go and license brands like Peaky Blinders and Black Mirror and even, you know, MasterChef to these to these new software platforms. And to what extent is the pandemic, because obviously we're still in it, uh, playing a part in how you're developing this area and this line of business? So I think we all we can do is listen to our licensees and the licensees are reacting to consumer behaviours and absolutely consumer behavior has changed and altered because of the pandemic. I do feel though that some categories are bouncing back really aggressively, like I said before, like people are, people really want to go on holidays and do holidays they never did before. Hospitality's back, people, particularly in the UK, people don't have to wear face masks. Now, I, obviously I can't talk for what it's like in markets like the US or France, Italy, where maybe their laws are different and they're, they're still affected or impacted by the pandemic. But I think what's clear is, you know, obviously we know people are at home more. So, 
yeah, mate, you, know, you, you see that gaming is booming. But then, you know, the, the other side of that is that I still think live events and hospitality are, are have bounced back really aggressively. So where, where it all ends up, you know, I, I just don't know. I just don't know at this point. Will we be impacted again by COVID or another virus? I'm not sure. But some things are definitely back with a bang. But yes, some things have changed. Some consumer behaviour has changed. But all we can do is react to the demands of our licensees and, and what they want. You know, they're the clever ones that understand consumer behaviour. Given the size of Banerjee, do you have all the kind of necessary people and skill set within the company to do events? You know, say you wanted... You mentioned Crystal Maze, say Hunted, you know, that became yeah. a kind of an, ex, a, an experiential um, yeah. event. Or do you have to work with third parties? Yeah, we work with third party operators who are specialists in, 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 in putting on events or experiences. You know, I think working with specialists is, is, is definitely the best way, particularly when the, the risk is with them, you know, so creating the event and the cost of that sits with them. Marketing and promoting the event generally is something that is a cost within their business. However, because of the size of our RIP and our brands, and, you know, brands like Black Mirror have many millions of followers on social media platforms. So we, we obviously can and, and will help promote that event because it's within our interest to make it a success from a revenue perspective because we 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 share we share that revenue with them but no to to your question generally we rely on third parties to put on these events obviously the 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 idea of movies and tv shows being the basis of experiences is nothing new you know disney's been doing it for for decades but to what extent do you think so you've meant, we've mentioned Netflix and obviously Disney, you know, is, is a big streamer now. To what extent are the kind of broadcasters and that world of, of the TV industry kind of getting involved in this area as well? Well, you, you see fantastic success with what ITV has done with, say, Cor the Coronation Street tours and, you know, rebuilding that set and how popular that is. So you know they're they they are already very much involved you see what warner brothers has done with the harry potter experiences so you know this isn't it's not new but i think you're really you it depends on the format and how popular the brand is the reach the level of audience engagement but ultimately I think you are relying on third-party specialists to, to deliver it and execute it effectively because it's, it's, it's a massive undertaking. <laughs> One thing that's really interesting for us at the moment is replicating events and experiences with our brands, and we touched on it earlier, on these digital universe, metaverse-type platforms. You know, if the world if the world does move that way, if, if audiences are increasingly going to these these, if, if audiences are engaged by digital worlds, then we need to we need to be thinking about creating content to engage those consumers on those platforms. And obviously, I still think that our TV brands will be part will be part of the metaverses, but then. When you look at the audiences that are 
part of these communities, you, maybe we, we need to think differently from a creative perspective about the content that is created and produced and delivered on metaverses. And actually Banerjee is, is, is thinking that way and investing in it already creatively. When you see like the, you know, the, the Roblox fashion event, which is a daily event, and you've got, you've got teenage, teenagers now dragging their parents in to dress the avatar to then compete in that fashion show, you have luxury brands already involved in this daily event because the audience is there. It's such a it's an and it's a it's a captive, fully engaged audience. So we we need to be thinking about not just taking IP that already exists in the TV world and on streaming with streamers and on other digital platforms, but we need to be thinking about new and original content for the metaverse and Banerjee is already starting to do that which is brilliant Owen Wolbyoff from Banerjee now back to Nico to introduce the next interview this year August 24th not only marks the Independence Day of Ukraine when the country declared independence from the USSR in 1991 but half a year since the full-scale Russian invasion of the country began when all film and TV production across the country stopped and TV channels launched a joint news marathon. The organisation of Ukrainian producers, set up in March after the war began, has helped organise premieres for some of the first documentaries to be filmed in the country during the first months of the war. Mariupol and Lost Hope, Nine Lives, Station of Hope and The Lost House are set to be screened on August 24th in 40 cities around the world providing powerful accounts of the country's resistance and documenting the war through the eyes of Ukrainians. C21FM spoke with Ukrainian producers Daria Ligonifialko and Igor Storichak, who are currently based out of France and Switzerland respectively, about securing international distribution for the documentaries, as well as the ongoing devastating impact of the war on the Ukrainian TV industry and how the global TV business can help to support it. Well, I'm Daria, Daria Ligunifi-Fialko. I'm uh, the Ukrainian uh, producer and uh, media manager. I'm running the, the TV production, uh, film and TV production uh, company called Space Production, uh, mostly specializing in uh, production of series. Well, we're developing some films as well, but mostly the core is the series. And uh, I'm a co-founder of the association, actual organization of Ukrainian producers, which was founded back in March. Uh, 2022, uh, which we're actually talking to you about uh, today, which is the organization for creating the documentaries and uh, also films connected and uh, talking about the events of this uh, Russian war in Ukraine. Uh, I'm Igor Storchak. Uh, I uh, have uh, quite a massive uh, distribution background because I worked for Filmia, which is uh, one of the biggest Ukrainian media companies as a CEO of distribution. Just before the war, I have founded my own production and sales house, Ginger's Media, and uh, uh, I also participating in uh, organization of Ukrainian producers, and currently I'm doing 
doing one of the documentaries within this organization, uh, the film uh, named Against All Odds. Okay, brilliant. And we're obviously, you know, speaking at a very difficult time, you know, for Ukraine, the war continues, uh, Russia's war on Ukraine continues, and we're speaking in the week that celebrates the Independence Day of Ukraine. So if we could begin with you just briefly, just yeah, telling me about the history of that day and what it means at the moment. So, yes, indeed, um, it will be the Independence Day in Ukraine, and also it will be sixth month of war started uh, February 24th. I think that, uh, like, this is 31st anniversary of independence, but uh, just now we understood what is basically independence for us, for our country, and that this is not something abstract but this is mostly real things the right to live in your country right not to be a refugee right to safety for your family and uh, possibility to enjoy the work which you like unfortunately most of these things are not available for i would say 95 percent of ukrainians now because all of us have felt that independence is uh, really crucial at this time. But we stay as optimistic as, as it's possible and we hope that the 32nd Independence Day we will celebrate much happier and in the other world. Well, for me, for me, the Independence Day, it's quite sad What I when you ask this question, I feel quite sad because I, I ask myself, why? I mean, why do you need to have war in your country to really feel this uh, basic need for and basic right to be just an independent citizen in the independent country. So it's quite sad because before, okay, we lived, we enjoyed our life, our country, great country, great, beautiful Ukraine, incredible Kiev, so fast developing, so much. I mean, it was such a pleasure. But we never felt like, okay, we need to be independent. Well, we didn't feel that. We just lived our life. We were not thinking, oh, but we need to feel independent from someone from Russia. We don't care. I mean, okay, there is Russia. We have different relations with them. Something is good, something is bad. And now now, with this war, of course, the meaning of independence is completely different. So this became the basic need, and this is what we're all united around. So this became like a very important uh, day uh, we're celebrating this week. And you've been involved in a kind of initiative in terms of the launch of some great documentaries about the war that will launch on um, so Wednesday, August the 24th. Tell me about those documentaries and, and how those premieres will, will take place. So the, the, the plan is that we, uh, after we founded our organization of producers to create the documentaries about this Russian war in Ukraine, we decided that the mission should be to talk with the maximum exposure to in Ukraine, but also to the world about why this war began, what it means, what, will, what are the causes what's going on so this is the main sort of mission to, to get it covered and to tell the stories because of course there is a huge news coverage all over the world about what's going on in Ukraine but this is not the same as creating films uh, where you have the characters where you have people talking and telling their stories and sort of to give some artistic vision of this this is already something else this is another way of talking about this war and uh, we are very happy that 
that we managed to create already, to have finished, not to create, but to have finished for the production of four documentaries by now, which will premiere this week for the Independence Day, but also which is sad enough for the six months anniversary of the war. And we will have a massive exposure all over the internet, on all the online platforms in Ukraine. Uh, we will premiere uh, one film per, per day in internet online, and then we will put all of them on the marathon feed, which is the, um, I'm not sure if you, maybe you, you read about that or you heard of that, but most of the broadcasters in Ukraine, public and commercial, since the beginning of the war, they united to do one news feed that they put on air, that they broadcast all of them. And so we will be there in this uh, television feed as well with our films. So this is like a huge coverage in Ukraine, but at the same time, we are selling internationally and we are doing the premiere of one of the films, like we show in cinemas and different um, cultural centers in 40 cities all over the world. So this is what we are doing for the events sort of to, to commemorate the 24th of August this week. And how were those destinations for the premieres chosen? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, the film which will be shown to this, in these theaters is uh, about Mariupol. You know, this is a big industrial uh, city which is on the sea coast of Azov Sea. And uh, uh, the creators of the movie, they wanted to find cities which in a, in a way is similar or alike uh, to, to the Mariupol. Uh, they have selected either kind of industrial or uh, cities which are on the coastlines. For example, there is Beijing uh, in this uh, in this selection. There is uh, Batumi in Georgia, which is also on the on the coastline. There is Basel actually in Switzerland, which also deals with the chemical uh, production. So they tried to show to the world that it's not something which happened on another planet. It's like this is a city which is in some way similar to to the city where you guys living and um, this makes it more emotional and um, sympathetic to, to, to people who see this movie. And as well as um, Mariupol, there's documentaries about stories of Ukrainian refugees and European volunteers. Um, there's one that focuses on the animals that were in Ukraine at the time of the war and what happened to them, as well as one about the liberation of Kiev. Um, yeah. So tell me a bit about how, beyond those premieres, what's the, the the life of those documentaries after that? Are you looking for an international distribution partner? Do you have one on board? Uh, yeah. Uh, for two of these titles, for the Mariupol and uh, for the Nine Lives, which is the documentary about animals, we have just signed a distribution deal with uh, uh, with a documentary company within the Betafield, the Authentic Distribution. Uh, we are very thankful to Miriam Strasser and Angelika Strebins uh, and all other people who helped us here. They saw a big potential in these films and we think that uh, they're now preparing for the worldwide distribution and uh, they start telling to their clients about this movie. So there is a potential. For other titles, we are also in talks with uh, uh, international distributors, we're in talks with uh, big streamers uh, and TV channels. But uh, frankly speaking, we also, as I said in the beginning, Daria and me uh, and 
our colleagues. We do have quite large experience of uh, international distribution. So we also might uh, help to promote these titles to the international audience. So I think I see the quite uh, optimistic perspective in terms of distribution for these titles. Uh, we see quite uh, big interest from public broadcasters uh, in Eastern Europe, not only in Eastern Europe, in the uh, United States, United Kingdom, Australia. So I think we will do our best to show to the world audience this films. And Daria, could you update me on what production and making television and feature length documentaries is like in Ukraine at the moment? Well, actually, when uh, the war started, of course, everything just stopped. <laughs> it's quite a strange feeling, which is think, well, not a thing, which I'm sure like it's not possible even to imagine when everything just stops. It's not a decrease in the market. It's not a stagnation. It's not something like, uh, well, it's not like back in 2014, for example, after the Crimea, uh, when uh, we had this divorce between Ukraine and Russian media markets, which we were be before that connected. But okay, this was just some changes. Everything just stopped. And uh, we could see that uh, starting from, um, well, starting from March already, so quite quickly, we could see that the filmmakers and the television makers in Ukraine, they became quite, uh, well, quite active. So for example, the, well, if to divide the market into some components, so what the documentaries and filmmakers are doing and they, they, they are shooting from the very beginning of the war, they're shooting everywhere in all the hot places, everywhere, just collecting materials a lot, a lot. And what was great, I remember that at the very beginning of the war, they were very much helped by European, especially by the Polish colleagues to be provided everything that was needed for the some security in these shootings, so like special kind of the cameras, which are light and small, special defense on your body so that you can enter the buildings without being shot, etc. So that was quite unique. And they have quite different approach. Well, some of them, they say, oh, no, no, we are not ready to think about creating a movie now. This is something that we will do when the war is over in many years. We don't know. So they're just shooting. Some of them will like us, they already want them. They're ready to speak to the world and to themselves, telling some stories. But this filmmaking institution is quite active. Then the second segment, uh, well, the, the the channels, the TV, the media groups themselves, well, this is quite dramatic because, well, uh, one of the top three media groups in Ukraine, well, just closed up. Well, they, 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 they announced that they closed the channels. They gave up all the licenses to the state. And, uh, well, this is it. And this is just the end. Well, and this was not just like a small channel or something. This was like one of the top three media groups. Then the well, and that was quite quite a shock for the market. I can tell you. Yeah, and, this was Media Group Ukraine. Is that right? That's exactly Media Group Ukraine, which belonged to um, Ahmedov, who also owned many plants uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine, including Azov Style, etc. So that was uh, that was his. So what they started to do, well, except for this collapse of the media group, the other media groups, they are, as I already mentioned, they are doing this feed for the news marathon altogether where they shoot uh, a lot, uh, also like a news coverage, but they united their efforts to do just one for all the broadcasters. And this is what they do because the other stations which don't share the same news feed, they broadcast entertainment, but this is just pure library. There is nothing in production at the moment. And then the, the, the next component which is coming to the production side, well, this is all about, uh, we see there is some 
start at least like the channels, the media groups, they're starting some discussions with them, with us. And this is already a good sign. At least they, they say, oh, okay, let's discuss. What can we do? Can we do this? Can we do that way? Can we do in this kind of partnership? Can we reduce the costs in this way? So at least there is, we can feel that there is some move, movement which is starting to appear in the market. And of course, this is all very much about the potential co-production projects with European countries. And space is set up in Paris to kind of develop those. So tell me a bit about that operation. Well, it sounds really great. Space is set up in Paris. <laughs> Space is set up in Paris. This is true because I'm set up in Paris. I was in Paris even before the war. This is true. And uh, well, we gathered, uh, well, my partner, the partner of mine who's uh, in space production, she also joined me in Paris. And so we're doing all the operations from here, which I can tell you quite a good place to be when you're developing in Europe. It's, it's, it's great. So what we're doing now, we are in a very diverse i would say talks to different markets one category of course like we're in talks with french market and german market and we're trying to find the ways of co-productions here uh and we have some projects where potentially we will we have a partner for one project in germany and we have a partner for another project in france then we do develop uh, we do develop now in the countries of eastern and um, central europe with, with, which is more about selling the red made and formats because this is the markets which are more ready to discuss at least to look at the ukrainian franchise so these are the main directions of what we're developing now and obviously and understandably documentaries have yeah, been a big focus so far but there is a, a scripted uh, kind of feature-length film the day i met spider-man that's is it in production and do you know much about that that project yeah yeah, this film is uh, in production at the moment. This is uh, screen live genre, uh, and um, the director of the of the movie Anton Skripets, which is a really young guy with absolutely uh, original and uh, professional approach to the filmmaking, uh, had this idea to uh, shoot the movie. Neither me nor Daria haven't seen any materials yet. We're expecting it, uh, say, by September. This is also quite interesting question if uh, if you should create like mostly or only documentaries or you can do some scripted i think there is a like there is a room for both genres in this case and we are really inspired to see how it will be in the end uh so uh yes i hope that uh, in september we can share with you some information about this film and hopefully it will be also successful we have a partner there we i mean like uh, the organization of ukrainian producers because the production company is uh, mama's production uh and uh, yeah we are really looking forward to seeing and I've been speaking to a lot of your colleagues from Ukraine at various events around Europe uh, over the summer, and they've been really pushing, you know, for more international cooperation. Are you starting to see that happen? And are you kind of happy with the the amount of support um, that you're seeing from the international community? Well, we have been very active this summer. This is true to to, to talk to different co-production partners where all over the Europe. This is true, and they could see other colleagues from other companies as well. 
I cannot say, of course, uh, I cannot say it's easy and quick, but it's not, it cannot, it cannot be. Uh, what I can say, what is great is that we really, this all pushed, this all tragic events, they pushed us to go on a next level of international development, which was not supposed to be so urgent and so important for all of us. We were all quite happy in our local market, thinking maybe one day in some years we will do something internationally. Now, this is another attitude. And uh, the, 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 great, uh, the great thing is that the feedback we're seeing, that the, the content and the ideas and the, the way of co-production, co-developments, discussions, this is extremely like we're on the same planet. It's not like we're in different planets and we have nothing to talk about. No, no, no. So this is great. And then, of course, what is difficult and what is challenging to go into the real production, to go like, okay, like now we're in the shootings already. So this is the next stage and uh, it will still take some, some time to understand which kind of stories uh, we can tell to the world, uh, which can be co-produced by, I don't know, French Ukrainians and that can be, or British Ukrainians, French, and which can be something real, which can, what can be the model of these co-productions and how we can be efficiently useful to each other. So, well, yes, this summer was very different for all of us in terms of the, all the separations and I could see so many activities everywhere. Well, the, the, the countries and our European colleagues, this is true, they were quite welcoming. Especially Polish ones. So I think that uh, it's very important for us at the moment, for us Ukrainians, I mean, to uh, pay quite a lot of attention to market of Poland. And that couple of very important things in Poland is first of all, uh, this country accepted uh, most of Ukrainian refugees. Uh, this is the closest country to Ukraine at the moment. Uh, we have like very similar language, we understand each other and of course we are like we're different, like all nations are different, but uh, we are very close in some other things. Me personally, I see big potential in uh, creating the content which would be both Polish and Ukrainian. And I think that in the next couple of years, I hope that in the next couple of years we will see some examples of this. For example, uh, just yesterday I read that uh, our colleagues have finished the format of um, Servant of People, the, the series uh, in Polsat. So hopefully uh, we will uh, be able to create really big and interesting scripted uh, content together with Polish products. Well, in space, for example, now, so what we do, well, like space together um, with this, with our organization of for documentaries, we are now developing a new project uh, which is called Art uh, in War, and which is about the new Ukrainian art being created now during this war. And this is already, well, we started as an organization of producers, we started just to produce locally with our own money, and now we are already like extending to do this on the international scene because this project is now to be produced already in co-production with the German co-production partners. Or for example, uh, we're also now uh, in space where developing a feature film with the French co-producers and which is also to, to become something like a new, well, a new kind of storytelling that we want to bring to the market. So yes, we see some results. We, we do see some results. This is quite um, strange 
mix of feeling, which is at the same time, it's very tragic and very sad, like why you are doing this. But as a result, it's quite challenging. So one day you are just crying and saying, oh, I hate it. I don't want to do it. I just want to be back in Ukraine producing my Ukrainian content. But another day you say, oh, but this is great. This is challenging me because I can do also something great, telling the Ukrainian stories for the world. I also would like to say that, you know, uh, it's really difficult and painful and terrible uh, and stressful to feel all this spectrum of emotions which we are Ukrainians feeling now. But in terms of art and uh, television and film making is kind of art. So it gives, it might give a, give a birth to something really new. So it pushes you to create something and gives you the ground for new creative ideas and it stimulates you in a way. I don't know if I wanted this kind of stimulation, but uh, there is no other way. Absolutely, yes. And there are now so many Ukrainian refugees around Europe. You know, countries like Poland, I think you mentioned, have, has welcomed a great many. Um, are you seeing, as you know, this has an impact on Europe's demographics and the number of Ukrainian people now, you know, horribly kind of displaced from their homes? Are you seeing European broadcasters, you know, in countries like France, Igor, I think you're in Switzerland. Are you seeing them kind of shift in terms of and an, an acknowledge the fact that they now have maybe not a huge Ukrainian audience, but bigger than they, they ever have? Um, I have spoken, I have asked the same question to, to my colleagues in Poland, to TVP uh, in particular, and they think about this. They work on the new strategy and they understand that fortunately or unfortunately, a big part of Ukrainians uh, would stay in these countries because, you know, kids started to go to school and uh, maybe uh, somebody found a uh, new love in new place. It's also, it's also nice, yeah? And it means like a big number of Ukrainians uh, will live in Poland, for example, which would affect TV viewing habits, which would affect the content producing and so on. Uh, on the other hand, what I see now um, in Switzerland, I have spoken with uh, uh, our colleagues uh, from uh, Swiss television and uh, I just I don't know if, if we can talk about this but I just I started developing one documentary about the Ukrainian refugees in Swiss in, in Switzerland because uh, there's so different people here and many of them uh, just first time outside of Ukraine and they are like not in I don't know not in Moldova not in Romania but in Switzerland which is like country with uh, absolutely other level of everything in comparison to Ukraine. And it's so interesting to, to, to talk to these people, to see what they have done, how they feel here, and so on and so on. So, And I have got a very good feedback from uh, Swiss uh, television about this documentary. So I think uh, there is a way for us to tell more stories uh, about this. Yes, it's sad. It's it's uh, very difficult and uh, tragic sometimes, but maybe like in, in psychology to overlive this, you need to speak about this. You need to, you need to talk, you need to discuss, and then you will, in one moment, you will understand that it's already behind you. Absolutely. And Daria, do you have thoughts on that too? Well, I've been thinking what you said, do I feel any difference in the attitude of the French broadcasters considering the amount of Ukrainian refugees? 
So this I would say maybe no, I don't. Well, because the population of France is huge, the market is developed, the number of refugees is not that significant. I mean, it's big. Of course, it's big. I mean, it's not nothing. But I wouldn't say that this is big enough to change the the audience perception, especially in the French market where the Ukrainians, they don't speak French. So they are not even potentially the audience of the French television for the next, uh, let's say, couple of years until they start to speak French. So it's the situation is not like in Poland, like what Igor just described, where they're even thinking of opening a different a new channel for the Ukrainian audience where they're considering different uh, content where we can speak about the stories mixed Polish-Ukrainian because you understand well when when you speak Ukrainian the Polish people understand you when they speak Polish and you understand them so this is extremely funny especially considering that well Ukrainian is Cyrillic so you understand the way you write there is nothing in common but the way you speak when you hear people speaking so this creates many great also situations for any comedy for example which can be Ukrainian Polish. So this is quite quite influencing, but I don't see that really in France. No, I wouldn't say it exists. The, 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 what I see in different attitudes, I can feel a lot of interest. I can feel they're curious. I can feel they're, somebody's ready to help, somebody's not. Somebody is uh, trying to help by talking to you, by discussing projects, somebody, another person, well, in a different way, but it is not about the changes in the audience. This I wouldn't say. I see any potential in that. And do you have plans to attend MIPCOM in October, both of you? Yeah. Yes, hopefully we will be there. Okay, great. Well, yeah, looking forward to an- another great Ukrainian presence there because that was something that was brilliant to see at MIP TV and, and hopefully we'll continue at MIPCOM. public broadcaster Channel 4 earlier this year invested in five-year-old independent comedy producer Rockadale Studios. Set up by former Love Productions and BBC execs Stu Richards and Michelle Singer. The disabled-led company puts on and off-screen disabled talent at the heart of its work and has made a name for itself with shows such as Mission Accessible and Brad Boys for Channel 4 and Bobby and Harriet Get Married for Viceland and Comedy Central. Singer spoke to Nico Franks from Edinburgh about the return of the annual Fringe Festival to the Scottish capital and the extent to which it remains a source of new TV comedy talent. I'm Michelle Singer, I am co-founder and one half of Rockadale Studios. So we're here in Edinburgh, it's been a few years away. How is it being back and attending the Fringe? It is absolutely lovely being back. I'm really pleased that things feel as close to normal as they can and it's almost as if there hasn't been the gap but I think everybody's acutely aware that there very much has been. Uh, It's great to see people out and about, loads of audiences, people mingling, being even on a drinky day like today. Uh, You know, it's just really lovely being back and being reminded of what the atmosphere can be like. And uh, I'm not sure I realised quite how much I missed it, but I definitely did, and I'm thrilled that uh, I'm here and that it's going on. And Rockadale has a a well-earned reputation for comedy, and how has your development process uh, changed over the past few years, given that live comedy basically had to shift online, but has since bounced back? How has that changed things? 
Well, I think um, we have been capable of being pretty agile, which I know is a terrible buzzword. Nevertheless, we were ready for it. Uh, we didn't depend purely on seeing live comedy anyway in order for our development process to still be successful. Um, I'd like to think that we were fairly well uh, implanted amongst the sort of the, the comedy comedian circuit to begin with. Um, and those things tend to be generational as well. So the odd year, I don't believe, would be too disruptive to that. But I think fundamentally, uh, there was enough of a shift in attitude of the comedians into becoming much more successful content creators and essentially plying their trade by other means during all of the lockdowns and so forth that there was still much in fact much more to be seen and many more relationships to be built through that sort of work than necessarily uh, for argument's sake once a year coming to the Edinburgh Fringe and seeing live gigs there if you put everything just on this one festival I think you're probably in the wrong job to start with this is either the start of or a culmination of something but to think that you're simply going to do all of your development work over the course of three or so weeks, you're on a hiding to nothing if you believe that's the case. It's much more important being here in one sort of collective, those, what I would say, maybe the soft skills. It's the opportunity to be in one place, be very sort of concentrated and less distracted by the world around you to nurture those sort of relationships and you can have much more truthful I suspect conversations with uh, performers and creators here uh, because you're so in the zone let's say so there are advantages but if, if as I say if you're sort of pitting everything on just this three weeks you're in the wrong job and you kind of alluded to it there but to what extent is Edinburgh Fringe a place to kind of find shows or, or stand-up or sketch acts who you know are can take that show and, and directly transplant it onto a TV screen uh, well there are several things there the direct transplantation I think is a very rare thing very rare uh, I mean I'd almost describe that as a unicorn and I, I don't think that's the way it would be or should be however finding new talent I think that's a really interesting question on the if if talent is new to us you then that's one thing if talent is brand new that's a different thing altogether and if talent is new to a, a TV comedy audience, for example, or a wider audience, not necessarily comedy fans audience, that's a separate element altogether. So I suspect that where you have comedy talent who've been plying their trade for a while but aren't necessarily well known to a wider audience, I think Edinburgh Fringe is great for that. For a brand new performer, uh, it's probably far less likely that that would be someone or a, 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 an act that would immediately translate to anything 
But, as I mentioned previously, that might be the chance to, to nurture the relationship. If you see something in it, then there's a chance to say, okay, how might we work with you to turn this into something more televisual? Um, so I suspect at the moment, and I think, I think, unfortunately, I think this is changing more and more too, that newer, fresher talent at the, at the start of their career I think they're fewer and far between here and I think that's going to be on the increase because it's so outrageously expensive to bring a show of any kind, of any sort of duration of run as well here. And then on top of that, to get people to come see it, to get, if you're interested in finding industry to come see it as well, even harder. So the competition and the cost I suspect are probably something close to ruining uh, the vast majority of good new talent from being seen here. And so then the job of good comedy producers like us is to find them elsewhere. And that opens up really interesting many more avenues. And once again, I suspect to loop back previously, during the time of lockdown, smart comedy talent figured out how to do that online even if they weren't used to it before and I suspect now there's a, a fairly clear path for those people who are you know the length the breadth of the country don't have the money to place themselves here during this one once a year showcase who can do it by other means now and I suspect there are producers who are much more open to that now as well and much more used to seeing how uh, the short piece of content that you've put up on uh, whether it's TikTok or any number of platforms might be plied into something more interesting so I think we've all learned over the past few years how to do it better which is a positive thing but I suspect that this might be a time to start seeing a real decline in uh, newer acts being at the fringe, being seen and starting their careers from this three-week period. And you think that there's been a bit of a missed opportunity in those two years for the fringe to kind of react and, you know, that I've seen on uh, social media some comedians saying a new city should host its own festival and you know begin afresh because things have kind of got to a point in Edinburgh where you know the cost of staying here for a month is just crazy. Yeah again I think there are two issues there so one is what do you mean when you say fringe and the other is uh, could, the fr could the Edinburgh fringe have learned and moved with the times or some version of that over the course of the last couple of years? I'm not sure, in all honesty, that it was the responsibility of the Fringe to be able to create a platform by which acts could be seen when the live Fringe couldn't happen. I'm not sure that's their remit. Um, there are always things that could be done better and differently, and we're all fools if we don't believe that for a second. You get stuck in a rut, then you're out of here. But I, there are other Fringes nowhere near as um, populated or popular. Um, I think the tradition of the Edinburgh Fringe is one that should be appreciated and loved, but I do think the Fringe as an organisation has a greater power to be able to exert that they don't seem to. They could do things better. They could make that sort of land grab for accommodation prices that you refer to for performers a lot better and don't. 
Um, and I suspect also over the course of the last couple of years, I sort of don't blame people who are on the flip side of that and making their money from <laughs> this duration of Fringe. I kind of don't blame them for trying to sort of take their opportunity where it calls for it. There is one interesting uh, adjustment possibly or addition, the partnership with Next Up. And just for those who don't know, Next Up, that's a UK-based streaming service, subscription streaming service focused on stand-up. So I think the model that um, Next Up and The Fringe have come up with is uh, a really positive one. I would love to see either many more shows being, in inverted commas, broadcast through Next Up or other platform operators offering a similar service. Um, but I think what that offers is very much a similar version to the content creators being able to get their material out there by whichever social media platform exists anyway. And to, to some degree that shows that the Fringe is considering it and is prepared to move with the times a little bit. Um, I'd love to see a lot more of that, but I think that's very encouraging for people performing shows. If there were a model whereby... Uh, a performer uh, spending an absolute fortune to be here could offset that cost some way by a version of online ticket sales internationally potentially or certainly across the UK such that the ticket buyers don't necessarily need to be at the fringe that would benefit everyone I'm not sure that's what's happening just yet but I do think uh, the the collaboration with Next Up is a step in the right direction for some now there are questions as to which agents have done those deals and you know it's not an independently run thing but it's a step and if it's a model that proves successful I'm sure that other people will get in on the act in future Edinburgh fringes now if there were to be other fringes to I mean other fringe festivals exist across the UK never mind internationally all the time but if another fringe were to want to really make a land grab I think that would be fascinating to see who's prepared to step up the infrastructure behind something like this blows my mind I don't know if they're all capable of doing that but many of the other fringes that exist out there are great are much smaller but have a very different feel McCunclyth for example or Bath Festival so there are others out there but I'd be interested to see who wanted to step up to the plate so in terms of the talent you're working with at the moment, how did those relationships form and how long ago have those relationships been going? Interesting question. So to some degree it would be based on shows that we've seen, shows either here in previous fringes or shows that maybe started at the Edinburgh Fringe and then went on to go to other venues across the UK. Um, and in many cases they were talent that Stu Richards or myself, the Rockadale founders, uh, worked with previously. Um, we each have a background in very bad stand-up ourselves, so there's a bit of that too. Um, and in other cases there are people who we found either through our contacts or through being viewers of comedy. I mean, that's the fundamental thing. We love watching comedy. And uh, I think there's a danger of forgetting that sometimes in our business, but that's got to be the sort of fundamental part of it all. Um, and it's actually been really lovely to see 
there's one person in particular this year who's selling out their fringe run and that's not happened to them before across the board selling out and they're an example of somebody who we work with very closely and have done for years but they're an example of somebody who really adapted to putting their content online and developed a huge following over the course of lockdown in particular online which has in turn driven the sellout shows the sellout run that they've had here and that's really satisfying to see it merits the, the all the hard work and a little sort of pat on the back i suppose for us for recognizing that particular talent early on but uh, it's merited because they're phenomenal and who's that uh, that's a performer called alistair beckett king abk He's wonderful and it's really lovely to see an audience that he's grown himself from work that he's done independently be recognised and now be garnering such an audience at the fringe that he's sold out his run. That's how it should work, but that is on the basis of many years, from his point of view, of hard, hard work and an enormous amount of skill. And we're lucky that uh, we've worked together a lot before, we know each other well, and we continue to work with him. It's just a very satisfying thing to see from an artist's point of view. And how much can that ecosystem of online and live now sustain uh, a performer? Or is still you know, TV, a TV deal the holy grail? Because also not always is it guaranteed that it will translate to TV. I might be the wrong person to ask, frankly, if TV is still the holy grail. Uh, that's a question that you need to ask of those comedians, of those artists. In my experience, it's quite different, dependent on the artist themselves. So, for example, <laughs> I saw a comedian who I really enjoy uh, a couple of days ago, whose show, he's, been, he's a, a fringe veteran, but he has no interest in being on television and his show was not an overtly crafted hour of comedy such that it would attract a TV producer, say. He's simply an excellent comedian and TV is not for him. He's made that choice. He will gladly tell you that himself as well. Whereas if you are hungry for TV, then there are ways and means to do it and I think that uh, putting on a fringe show is still a successful way of starting that process. Um, it's much less likely to it, for it to be an entire fait accompli but I think that that particular path is possible but it's not the be all and end all and as I say it's very much dependent on the artists and what they want rather than any TV producer trying to impose that on a performer. Yes. Uh, the Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Did. And yeah, the Scottish comedian and writer Limmy always strikes me as a great example of that. And what he's doing on Twitch, you know, to get his, he, you know, that's his job now, is to just rock up on Twitch at 10.30 every day. And he's got thousands of people who tune in every day right. for that. And that's a full-time job. And he's a BAFTA-winning, you know, TV entity and yet he's making it work for him and I think that's, um, what would you call that, that independence, that sort of singularity of mind suits everybody. If you can afford to be that way, that's great. 
because you retain your artistic integrity by whatever stripes you define that as. And uh, I don't believe that TV producers should feel like they are the be-all and end-all. And I think we make a mistake if we think that we are everything. And if we listen to the performers and if we nurture those relationships, then should there be an opportunity and should the artist want to make TV with us ideally, then great. But it's a long old process anyway. And so any artist should understand that it's not going to be an easy thing. It's not going to be a quick thing. It's not necessarily going to be a get rich quick or otherwise scheme. So a lot of work from both sides will go into any TV project and you can't live on hope and expectation so you need something else to sustain you and uh, yeah I wouldn't want to be the sort of greedy dominant comedy producer of the the trope at least <laughs> I mean they exist obviously not naming names but that's not us and just finally how does your slate is it balanced between scripted and unscripted at the moment yeah, uh, we do have a mix, but I will say that um, when the pandemic struck, we um, we pivoted to more, um, we call it funny factual, but the more sort of fact-dent, uh, funny aspects of factual programming a lot more. Scripted just simply takes years to come to fruition, to get right, as well it should, but man cannot live on uh, hope alone, as I referred earlier. And so, yeah, it was necessary for us to make sure that we had a much more broad uh, slate and it served us very well. And comedy comfortably translates into most genres, in fact. So we've sort of ploughed a furrow of, there's a project, there's a Rockerdale project for most genres and understanding what we bring to that particular genre party is what's working for us. So scripted, we love, and we will be doing more of that. But the funny factual side of things too uh, bears fruit. And if anything, there are additional. We like to think that there's a Rockerdale show for every genre so that we can apply the comedy nows and skills that we have and performers that we work with for most genres and uh, that aspect of comedy that little sort of comedic magic really lends itself to a far more vast array of uh, shows than necessarily pure scripted comedy certainly we want to do more of our scripted work we've got various projects in uh, with various commissioners at the moment but that's a far longer process and so it pays quite literally for us to be a bit more of an agile business too it's uh, it's working for us and that's the sort of plan of attack for the next few years certainly and very finally you've seen a lot of shows at the fringe uh, this week is there has there been any kind of a trend or a thread running through them that you can kind of pick out between them all Thus far, I have to say, I am really not aware of there being necessarily any common, or overtly common themes. Um, there theoretically is a, this might be the year of the ADHD comedian. That's been, I've seen touted around on a few, uh, I saw it in The Guardian the other day, for example, in the headline there. Um, I think that um, if you want to go looking for themes, you can sort of draw you know, common 
threads from a variety of shows if that's what you want. Whether it's that, <laughs> if I could pat myself on the back, whether I've selected sufficiently uh, broad enough a selection of shows to see such that there aren't those common themes, or whether they just aren't there, uh, I, I couldn't say. Certainly though, at this point in time, I would say each of the shows I've seen are distinct, standalone, don't seem to sort of bleed into one another. And also there's a danger, I think, if you, if you want to, you, one can bleed into the other very easily and you can have the equivalent of poster blindness with shows that you see. It's really important that you ensure in your mind that those performers and that their crafted hour shows remain distinct in your head as well. Michelle Singer speaking with Nico Franks. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station where you'll find new interviews airing from Tuesday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.